and welcome to The Ruck. I don't know if you can hear the sound of lawn mowers in the background or indeed the clipped rhythm of knives cutting cucumber sandwiches. Where are we, Alex? We're at Penny Hill Park. That was Ruck regular f- rugby fashionista Alex Lowe. I'm Owen Slot, and we have a return to the podcast from Alex Spink, the rugby correspondent at the Daily Mirror. Spinky, great to have you back. Thank you, Slotty. The last time I did one of these outside broadcasts, I have to say, it was in the Angel Hotel in Cardiff with a with a a well-known radio station and there was someone sitting behind the man with the microphone clinking cutlery together and glasses together <laughs> so when we talk about uh, the grass being cut etc on this instance in this instance obviously we mean it quite truthfully <laughs> thank you for pointing that out yeah the lawnmower's working hard behind us um so yet yeah, we are not in our london studios we've gone on location today to pennyhill park where the england team have long been based uh, always struck me as a little peculiar or quaint if you like um, you get a room here for £300 and to give you an idea of the sort of place it is, uh, the blurb from their website uh, has an abundance of individually styled bedrooms and suites, a luxury spa, award-winning dining experiences. We make it an ultimate destination for all occasions, a five-star break, international conference. Your dream wedding, Alex, a pampering spa day, afternoon tea with the girls, Spinky, or a romantic dinner for two, uh, or indeed trying to win a Grand Slam or a World Cup. Do, do we think that this is one of the ultimate training centres in, in world sport? Yeah, it, it certainly is. Um, and it's actually got a pretty decent history of, of being the hub of, of World Cup successes. England obviously formulated their plans here in 2003. And I remember talking to Tendai M. Tawira, the Springbok prop, 2015, when the, when the Springboks moved in here after England had been eliminated. He said it was the best training facility that he'd ever experienced. There's a, a scrum garden that Graham Roundtree put in. There's an, an, an indoor training pitch, a half-size, massive gym. And the, and the field here is of Twickenham standard. So that's a pretty decent endorsement from the Beast. Everyone who stayed here in 2015, who the other teams who came here, like you said, South Africa, they all were raving about it as a, as a great place to, to, to come and train. Uh, Spinky, how, how did England actually come to be here in the first place? Well, funny you should mention South Africa because the Southern Hemisphere actually discovered this as a, as a rugby venue before England did. Um, 99 World Cup, England um, bombed out in the uh, quarterfinals, um, leaving uh, Australia, leaving the, the, the way free for Australia to, get, to go on and, and win it. And Australia based themselves here and, and Clive Woodward, as he was then, saw the venue, saw the facilities and thought, right, well, if it's good enough to, for Australia to win a World Cup, we're going to have it. And obviously, four years on, his team won the World Cup based here. Spinky, you've covered a lot of different sports. You've been to a lot of different training venues around the world. You, you, you've seen where elite sport happens. Where, where, where else have you seen that, that compares to this? Well, I mean, I do, I do agree with, with everyone that this is probably, you know, right up there at the very top level in terms of the facilities available. Um, the resources, the I mean, the RFU have got bottomless pockets, so you know everything they need, they get here, which is wonderful. I just kind of contrast it slightly. I remember going to, a couple of years ago. I went to the top of the Pyrenees to to seek out Mo Farah training prior to one of his many Olympic successes and in Fontremur, and we, we got up there, and it was just literally a, this kind of Spartan block of flats, and we waited for him. And he, he came out of his flat, went for about his seventeenth run of the day came back around the corner and we said, where should we meet? Is there a kind of high performance place we can meet, you know, somewhere to chat? And he said, no, no, it's just a little ice cream bar down the corner, into which we went. And you could hardly get a seat because there were just tourists everywhere. We sat down ready to do an interview. 
somebody who was with us, who was who was taking us there, said, "Oh, you know, can we get you some food?" And we said, "Yeah, that'd be lovely." And so <clears throat> midway through the interview with this Olympic champion, the greatest athlete that Britain has ever produced, we were handed ice creams, and it was the temperature must have been about forty degrees. And so I have a picture at home sitting opposite Mo Farah, Sir Mo Farah as he is now, with strawberry ice cream trickling down my arm <laughs> as we spoke. So as I say, it's a far cry from what England have here. We don't get ice creams here yet. For me, the, have you, has any, either of you guys been to the new Racing training centre in the, in the south, uh, south of Paris? That is, that is outstanding. That was built built for purpose from scratch so they've got all the different types of pitches that they need they have a dormitory there for their acad- academicians uh, and they have a small school on site as well um so so for me that's um that's about as elite to get especially in club rugby yeah i think uh, probably in world sport the top end you'd always look at the nfl teams because they've got huge money and they have they need space because they've got so many players and that is that is the best of the best and if you could equate this to an NFL camp. I mean, the, the NFL teams come and stay here when they play at, at Twickenham and, and at Wembley. So if it's good enough for them, then I think it's pretty clear that it's one of the best around. I think when the NFL came to play at Twickenham most recently, I think they had to uh, knock down a couple of the uh, the RFU committee rooms just to build a bigger changing room for themselves. So, so I think the uh, esteemed Eric room was knocked to pieces. All the pictures came down. They built their um, They built their changing room for one week and then rebuilt the Eric room. Okay, excellent. So, listen, on this point of elite training centres, we now uh, have joined us on the podcast, uh, someone who knows even more than, than Alex Spinky and myself on, on this subject, Dean Benton, Head of Sports Science uh, for England, uh, is coming to give his own opinions on the very subject. Dean, you've worked for um, a fair few number of sporting outfits, uh, the Wallabies, the Japan rugby team, French rugby, uh, Melbourne Storm Rugby League, Netball Australia... Uh, the swimmer Stephanie Rice, three gold medals. Brisbane Broncos, Leicester Tigers, Australia Institute of Sport, and the Queensland Institute of Sport. So, so you've seen a lot of different sporting environments. So, we're, we're talking about Penny Hill Park as an elite training centre, and and from what you've seen ar- around the world with all the, these manifold experiences, how do you compare this to, to other places you've been in? Well, I'd probably divide it in terms of professional sports and Olympic sport. Like five big centres around the world. Obviously, you've got Loughborough, you've got the Australian Institute of Sport, Leipzig in Germany, um, US Olympic Training Centre, and now Aspire recently. Um, they're probably the, the premier facilities in terms of Olympic sports. That's Aspire in Qatar, yeah? Qatar, yes. Uh, however, in terms of professional sports, I would have to say that Penny Hill now is probably the best I've seen. It's very functional, allows us to train the way that we want to train in a very integrated fashion. So we have a nice blend of indoor and outdoor facilities, to which I'm sure you guys have seen. And now it enables us to vary our training and to do more training uh, and to be even at times aggressive with our training, given um, the short spaces of time that we have with the players. Do you find it a slightly bizarre, slightly quaint mix that you have this elite uh, sports team and rubbing shoulders with people coming away for, for away days or, or, a, or a nice dinner for two or a wedding even? Is, is that a bit peculiar or is that sort of part part of the character of it? Well, I suppose we have a mix, a mix of times when we're, we're very serious and intense and Eddie's very good at taking, um, I suppose, uh, the pressure off things and uh, there's times when we socialise together as a, as a squad and a staff and I think it's a nice mix with that. 
And for you, any sort of personal favourites about being in, in this hotel? Any parts of the training facility or, or anything on, on the pudding trolley even? I'd have to say, look, I've been, I suppose, instrumental in, uh, along with Eddie in terms of um, creating some of the new facilities here. So I'm partial to all of them, really. So, as I said, that the indoor facility enables us to do a lot more. Uh, its proximity to the gym is fantastic. Um, and of course we have a lot of different um, types of facilities of different nature outside so we can vary and blend our training and do a lot more training as a result. The idea of a cryotherapy centre was, was, um, is one that other teams have, have used and uh, England have had, had a mobile cryotherapy come in from time to time. Is that something that you would like more permanently or would that be a, a way forward? Yeah, we use it quite judiciously um, with some players like it. It's not a, a one-size-fits-all. We're quite varied with our recovery modes. Um, so yeah, it's it's just one one tool in the toolbox for us. In this Six Nations, we seem to be in a championship where uh, the battle of fitness has been talked about um, considerably already, especially in the lead up to the Wales game. There was talk about we're fitter, fitter than you, know, you're, uh, no, we're fitter than you, etc. So, given your experience with all these different um, teams and athletes that you've worked with, how do you see England at the moment on that uh, strata of, of fittest teams in the world, which is what they need to be for the World Cup? Well, of course, I'm going to be biased if we're talking about fitness. So, However, in saying that, I would have to say that um, the England team uh, are, the, are the best prepared in that regard that I've seen, uh, and by far, the, in terms of specificity of fitness, yeah, without doubt, um, the, the fittest team I've worked with. That's based on any particular parameters or, or, or the whole picture? Observations, um, knowing uh, what, how they compare to other historical data, to which I'm familiar with, with, with experience. I think we're only scratching the surface of where we can go. We're certainly uh, nowhere as near as fit as we can be, and that's going to be a, a journey towards the World Cup. So compared, say, to the Wallabies who you worked with um, in the build-up to the last World Cup, you say this England team is now considerably ahead of that? Of course, comparing to those what would be um, two years ago, of course. Um, so, so so the whole game's moved on considerably quite quite quickly then? Absolutely. It moves on all the time. It's quite, it's, it's quite dramatic. But look, I, I won't, I won't um, speak about direct comparisons with teams sure. and compare testing data. Um, I'll just, I suppose, direct uh, you guys to uh, how we performed in the last 20 and our uh, scoring profile. You, um, you talked about the facilities that you've been involved in putting in here. I don't know how many you, you're comfortable talking about, but there's one... There's a, there's a ramp that's been installed in the far side of the pitch. Is that for literally for mauling uphill? Or? Yeah, I'm happy to talk about the ramp. Obviously, it's, it's, it's nothing revelatory. There's, there's a few that exist around the world. There's one that Dallas Cowboys, University of Oregon have them. We use it for speed. We use to do some mauling up there and some other training modalities. But we'll also point out, like whilst we're very fortuitous to have some fantastic facilities here, it doesn't take the place of good quality coaching, and that's where we place our uh, our main emphasis. James Huskell's not not shy of a, a gym or a training session, but he was telling us at Twickenham on Friday that that was the toughest training session that he'd ever been through. He said that you keep changing the clock, or whether it just felt like that, but he said you keep changing the clock so they never know how long they've got left. But also, he talked about the integrated sessions that you just mentioned. Could you just explain what that means? Presumably kind of running from a bench press to a wrestling mat or could you talk us through those the kind of the shape of a training session quite simply that everything we do is, is directed towards the game plan and it obviously it's quite it's quite well documented he's talked about tactical periodization and everything we do in the gym is directed towards how we want to play so it's it's not like the old days of squat bench and chin and 
a very segregated way of training. It's very integrated. One thing that, that you mentioned from previous work, you, you work with the Japan Rugby World Cup team leading up to the last World Cup as well. You mentioned on talking about Japan that they had pioneered new performance paradigms for that World Cup. Can, can you explain that a bit more and, and where would England currently sit on, on against those against Japan 2015 in comparison? Very different situation. Um, obviously, Eddie applied tactical periodization with Japan very successfully. Again, you know, culturally, tactically, physically, very different situations. And he's simply, um, uh, that's the genius in Eddie, he, he can, he can recognise um, different cultures, different physiological back uh, makeups of players, and he adapts, I suppose, his systems to, to different situations, and he's done that. Uh, I think he's um, yeah, superseded what he's done with Japan already, and I, I still think there's a whole new level to come as well. That's really interesting. Can you explain that a bit? Uh, culturally, um, what would he be doing with English with an England rugby team versus what he could have done with Japan? I think we sort of have, have a very vague idea, but could you could you explain that a bit more and how he could have could have taken it even further? Yeah, like for instance, with the Japanese players, um, they're um, they're not they're not shy of work and they'd be happy to to train very very long hours. England players probably uh, are different in terms that they want to play, train for shorter periods and more intensely. So you've got to take into account, I suppose, different, you know, the, the Japanese players were big, they weren't particularly uh, fast. So Eddie took a, a approach with the backs, you know, to get them to be highly skilled and be able to um, play fast. Um, he obviously has different cattle here and we, we prepare them slightly differently. You say that there's a lot more improvement still to come. Is that only something you can do in that period between the end of the 2019 domestic season and the World Cup, where you have a big window there, or is that or, or is that something that we're going to see gradually between in the next 18 months? Probably more the latter. Gradually, we have a philosophy of, of staff and players are getting better every day, and the players you know, are very good. They spend 70% of the time with their clubs and 30% with us, and even with them with their clubs. Um, they, they continually improve. Um, and, of course, when they're with us, they do the same. So, yeah, it'd be more a gradual improvement. Fittest player in the squad? Oh, I'll be declined to comment on that one. They're, they're all very hard-working young lads. OK. Fittest coach in the squad? Oh, definitely Paul Gustard. Yeah, yeah, he, he trains like a demon, so you know, he, he, loves his, he loves his gym work. All right. Well, Steve Borthwell will be interested to hear that later. But thank, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Yeah. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Really interesting, I think, what he was saying about the unequivocal saying England were the fittest, and yet there was still room to get, room to improve. Uh, so, Calcutta Cup on Saturday is that um, yet another reason to believe English English should win? Where, where, where are you on that, Alex? Uh, it, it certainly feeds in, into the into England's confidence going up there. I mean, Scotland are a team who want to play fast, open rugby. 
and I think England would back themselves to to stick with them at a high paced game. They would also back themselves to to grind one out if if the conditions are as they have been in previous Calcutta Cup matches up there. I think the the Wales game, um, England failed to kick on at key times when you thought they could have won by more, but I think they're a team that is showing with with the base level fitness that they have that they can they can win either way and. That puts them in a very good position going up to face the Scotland team who who are going to probably want to come out and keep a very high tempo because I don't think they can match England's um, tight five and the sort of the grunt and grind that's going to be necessary. This isn't a this isn't an England team that is that is putting opponents to the sword through eighty minutes. They're, they're outlasting them. I think three times in the last four or five games they've scored three tries in the last. 12, 15 minutes to to pull away from sides. I mean, you know, they are not destroying teams across 80 minutes. What we really want then is a is a proper competitive Calcutta Cup. Do you think, Spinky, that we are on the verge of that? Because personally, my frustration with the England-Scotland fixture is it is so rarely competitive. And I, I struggle to remember the last time I was at Murrayfield and I was on the edge of my seat. Well, that's very true. I mean, even even games that have been won by either team up there have rarely been thrilling I mean I was kind of I was trying to think back through the the great England Scotland occasions 1990 obviously sprung to mind with Thatcher and the poll tax and and all the kind of peripheral chat which went in before that game which led Scotland to produce that kind of superhuman performance and uh, send uh, the English home to think again I mean after that you you look at 1996 Dean Richards a one-man demolition crew when England won at Murrayfield but prior to that, uh, but uh, you know, since then, uh, Scotland have won a couple of times, but there have been some really drab encounters, seriously drab encounters. Even the, there was a draw in 2010, 15 all, which couldn't have been. It was bizarre for a, for a test match ending a draw. Couldn't have been less thrilling or exciting. It was a drab, uh, one-paced, one-dimensional encounter. And, and you're right, uh, Sotty, about the. This should be one of the great exciting fixtures and and Eddie Jones um, rather poo-pooed the Scots for their performance last year where they came to Twickenham everyone was proclaiming them as as the great entertainers and they got um, they got a hiding at Twickenham um, and I think he was rather putting the pressure on them heading into this tournament because people were were saying much the same because of the way that they beat Australia the way they they pushed New Zealand um, but they haven't shown it yet this championship um, and and I think England will, will, will go there with 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 confidence, but I I, I don't go there with much confidence that it's going to be a uh, one of the great occasions, which is what England Scotland games should be and, and what you'd like them to be. Best thing that's happened to this fixture is is Wales burying Scotland on the opening weekend because it's Scotland came into the championship on on a real bounce after putting fifty points past Australia, uh, and everyone thought they could be serious challenges. Um, and people kind of detailed reasons why they could be. Gregor Townsend, brilliant tactical guy, um, knows how to bring the best out of his team, etc., etc. Wales just wiped them out in that game. And kind of Scotland were, were overconfident, believed their own hype. Um, and yet, when you strip all that away and you see that they've beaten France last time out, you, you kind of, it takes us back to what we thought of Scotland before the championship. You know, they are again a dangerous side that on their day, if they don't get carried away with themselves, can pose this England team problems. Now, that's not to say they're going to win it because I think England are on a different level, but they are a dangerous team and, and England will need to respect them. Otherwise, we'll revisit 2000 and 1990 all over again. And as you say, we, we all coughed up all these reasons why 
Scotland were, were bouncing back why Scotland were going to be the new force in the Six Nations and one of those reasons was Finn Russell who was the linchpin of this whole exciting new game that Gregor Townsend has, has had them playing and he's probably the, the most disappointing player across all all six teams at the moment in, without him there so there's a talk about you know he was he was taken off with 17 minutes to go against uh, against France and, and Greg Laidlaw saw it out without him there or without him in form is is there is there is there really a, a game plan for Scotland to to win this one? I, I think Finn Russell's problem last week was he they've got themselves into a mindset where they need to try everything all the time. They, they look for the miracle pass, the miracle play, all the time because that's how they've had their success. That's how they've beaten teams, and I think at, at times in certain matches it doesn't call for that. And that's where going back to what we're saying about England, if England need to produce something then they've got the capability to do it. But if they just need to be pragmatic and sensible, they can switch that on as well, which is what we saw against Wales. So I, it, I'd, be, I'd be surprised if they drop Finn Russell because he's so important to them. And if, if they play the way I think they'll want to play with tempo and to, to get England's defence moved around, then he's really important to that. His link with, with Stuart Hogg is important to that. But I think Finn Russell, you know, anything, uh, less than a year ago, um, there was uproar that he wasn't on the Lions tour. Um, and now he's being replaced early in, in a test match. So they can move their scrum half to, to manage the game better. And that, that's what he needs to, to, to improve upon, I'd say, if they're going to have any chance of, of beating England. You would also say that looking at the Scotland-France game a couple of weeks ago, I mean, France handed that game to Scotland. You know, Scotland played well and they came back into the game well, but France had, had built themselves a platform to win the game and, and they just evaporated in the second half. They were absolutely shocking. And, and what you know with England is that their base level is so much higher than that. Even if they get everything wrong, nothing comes off. You know their base level is going to be way above that. So Scotland are going to, to beat England, they're going to have to win the game. It won't be handed to them at all. France, as you say, were shocking in the second half of that game. And then they decided to go out and celebrate afterwards. Interesting, uh, interesting choice of behaviour. There was police involvement. There was a uh, suggestion of, of, um, of some sexual harassment number of players were called off the plane when they're just about to uh, to take off to return to Paris the next day um really really dire the whole thing and and this was the new Par- the new France that was coming together with Jacques Brunel so the word shambles hardly does the, hardly does it uh, sufficiently does it have they have they actually gone backwards if that was possible because they've now dropped eight players who played in that team most of those eight i think six of the eight were involved in in the uh, scandalous night out on that on that uh, sunday night in um in uh, edinburgh it, is that a team that is actually now in reverse i think you're probably right Sotty. i think it's very hard what, what, what almost what France need is to, for someone to press the stop button for them to start again. But what happens with France is they just compound one shambles with another shambles, and and I think Brunel has come in and, and perhaps dropping seven players, including Teddy Thomas, who has been one of their brightest stars of this championship, is his attempt to to, to stop the shambles, if you like, stop the rot, press pause on things, and actually relaunch the French team because he, you know. To, to have seven players pulled off an aeroplane and to be questioned, even if it, ultimately that nothing comes of it legally, um, just shows a lack of discipline and, and, a, and a lack of respect almost for, for the position that they're in. I know that the players um, under the previous regime, under Guinoves, had completely lost faith in the management. They lost faith that he was modern enough 
to have a have a game plan that was that was evolved enough to compete with with a team like England, um, and, and they had, they'd effectively stopped playing. I talked to, to someone when I was down at the World Rugby Awards who who'd been involved in that draw with Japan, and it was a sort of a shrug of the shoulders, and you know they lost faith in it. Brunel is trying to to start again. We saw that with the selection that he made at the start of the championship, but it, as Eddie Jones would, would be like here, discipline is everything, and um, I don't think you'd see seven England players going out on on Saturday night to the, to the same extent while they're on, while they're in England camp. Eddie Jones just won't stand for it because it's about standards. Well, that's absolutely true, but we only have to go back a decade to being in New Zealand in two thousand and eight, and then being in the World Cup back in that same country two thousand. Uh, Wherever we were, 2011. Thank you. Uh, and England were a complete rabble. You know, they were jumping off ferries. They were getting in trouble. They were being interviewed by the police. There was, you know, in 2008, there was, you know, concerns about kind of various, best way to phrase it, sexual impropriety, or what have you. Nothing was ever proven, but various players were were wrapped um, on the knuckles, uh, pulled over the coals over it. So England have been in this shambolic situation, and it's taken them an awful long time to get to where they are now, because you know. 2011 was was a serious low point um, before 2015, which was another even lower point. That was a rugby low point as opposed to a behavioural one. And the, the other thing you say about France, they are a shambles, and yet they should have beaten Ireland. You know, they, they, dom- they, they denied Ireland a try, and this is an Ireland team who we're now talking about as potentially as a Grand Slam team. Mm. Um, so they can't be completely without merit, but they've got to get their heads in gear. I mean, they're playing Italy at home this Friday. You can imagine Conor O'Shea's relief when he saw the news coming out of France about them all being pulled off trains, etc., um, planes, because Italy are a team who've got their own problems. But all of a sudden, that game down in Marseille on a Friday night is actually very interesting. You know, Italy will fancy that they can go and do a job over France. They've done it a couple of times. And France have got it all to prove because they are in a mess. Speaky, just moving back onto the England-Scotland game, one of the things we always talk about, especially in Six Nations, but around rugby, is is passion and emotion. And uh, Six Nations has a, has a competition with great history of rivalries, passionate rivalries. So you lived in Scotland over, over that uh, 1990 period. H- how long were you there for? I was there for three years, 89 to... Just well, almost ninety-three. So you were in the middle of it. You were, you would have felt what what um or you'd have, you'd have been aware of what Scotland and Scottish rugby people uh, how they felt towards England and and the England rugby team. I have to say I, I have a slight stance on this, which which is probably wrong. I'm I'm always slightly mystified that so much is built up about this, especially from the England side, because I don't think the England players feel this bitterness that 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 is push back at them I think I think England used to in the past when they went to Wales because they felt they felt they were the underdogs then and they and they 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 were sick of being beaten then but I think it's almost all the other way now just just tell us when you were in in Scotland in, in those years especially around 1990 as you said there, there were there was the grudge match the, the magnificent great historical Grand Slam game uh, that Scotland prevailed in how did it feel like to be around then well, you've got to remember this was the amateur era. I think professionalism has taken a lot of this away. Um, they, they still, be Wales, Scotland or Ireland, before they play England, they, they still trot out the kind of historical animosity, but it doesn't have the same resonance that it did back then, um, certainly in 1990. Um, as I say, that was a time of, of Thatcherism, uh, of a lot of hardship. The poll tax had been brought in, it was being forced on, uh, being forced on, trialled in Scotland. 
Um, and there was definitely, there was a, a resentment from uh, across the border from Scotland to England, which went far beyond rugby. But this was the opportunity. This was the kind of um, a mechanism for the Scots to really unload on England. And through that championship, Scotland had a decent team. England had a very good team. And England went up there with that swagger. Um, even if they're not confident, they're accused of being arrogant. But there was that sense that the you know, there was a bit of arrogance about them. They thought they only had to turn up for that game. Um, and when you talk about, you talk kind of glibly about playing against a nation, and we've seen it, we've been around the world and seen certain occasions where you really feel you're up against a nation. That was one of those occasions. I mean, Murrayfield was was just a sea of uh, vitriol and anti-Englishness, and England just never, never got going. I mean, I was reading some of the uh, press reports from, from that day afterwards, and um, the comments that were made were kind of, England expected, Scotland delivered. It, it was that sense of entitlement that England had then. Um, and they've, you know, that lesson takes a lot of learning because since then they've been back to a few, a few times. Um, as recently as last season, they went to Dublin for the for a Grand Slam. And we spoke to them the day before here and they were absolutely 100% sure in their own minds that they were going to win that game. You could, you could tell the way they spoke, you know. And so history and the, the Celtic fringe have a habit, a repeated habit of, of catching them with their trousers down. And do you think just to, to bring that all those themes through to the Calcutta game, Calcutta Cup game this Saturday, can can Scotland uh, dredge up that kind of emotion and passion that drove them then, or are we in such different times now where where the historical context that you put that game in is 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 almost irrelevant? Yeah, I think we are. I, I think professionalism has changed it. Um, that they will try, but I, I think they'll probably they'll probably take more from playing for Doddy Weir, for example, as they did yeah, uh, against in New Zealand in the autumn. They'll they'll probably take more emotion and passion out of a cause like that, as opposed to you know Ill, the English are out to get us in them because of things that they did in you know Bannockburn and Culloden all those years ago. I don't think that plays big anymore. Um, uh, they will find something, but I don't think it plays that big. I don't think it plays big between the players, as, as Spinky says. Um, I think someone was saying after the before the Wales game that you look at Bath. Bath have got Falatau and Charteris has been there, and, and then they're, they're used to playing alongside these players. A lot of them were teammates on the Lions. Where it does play a part, I think, is in the occasion and the atmosphere. And um, Spinky talked about about Ireland last year. You, you look back twenty, what year was it? Thirteen, twenty thirteen down in Cardiff, Wales, England. England went there to win the Grand Slam. No one really thought... We thought Wales might deny them the Grand Slam. Nobody thought Wales would, would go on and win the title because of the points difference. But the occasion was enormous and, and England were, were rocked by it. The noise inside that stadium was like nothing I'd ever experienced um, for, for that length of time. I remember what, watching Mo Farah win golds at 2012 um, which was spine tingling, but this was 80 minutes of a full-on oral assault, and on the field, Wales fed off it. So I don't think, you know, I don't, I don't think there's any hostility between um, b- between players based on on that history. But it whips up a fervour, and that fervour can then have an impact on on, on what happens on the day. Okay, so the final game of the weekend that we haven't spoken about is uh, Dublin, Ireland against Wales. Uh, 
Ireland will be favourites for that, but Wales will have significant players coming back. Probably George North, probably Liam Williams. Outside chance of Dan Bigger. Uh, that's a considerable considerable change. So three Lions coming back like that. Uh, how do you see that one going, Spink? Um, normally, when when a, ga- a game is almost too close to call, you you go with home advantage. You you, you tend to think that's going to be uh, relevant. I'm I'm kind of fascinated by Wales when Warren Gatlin's in charge because they're a completely different beast to. To, to the times when, when he goes away on his sabbaticals. And indeed, most times when they play in the autumn, when they just seem to be kind of revving themselves up for the kind of important part of the season, which which is the Six Nations. So this is Gatlin's 100th match in charge of Wales. It's a big occasion for him. He's only lost 12 out of 42 matches in the championship in charge, which is a pretty impressive record. Ireland are without Furlong, without Henshaw, two of their I don't know, top five most influential players, I would have thought. I would have thought Wales have got a chance, definitely got a chance. For the narrative of the championship, we kind of want it to go to an England-Ireland Grand Slam on the final day, so it would be quite nice if that happened, but I wouldn't put any money on Ireland with any confidence. We started the championship talking about how Ireland uh, had all, held all the aces because they had all the control over their players, so they were all fit. And as Pinky says, now they're losing... So they've got significant names out. Sean O'Brien's not there. Furlong might not be there, who's who's massive for them. He's the rock upon which so much is built. Um, not only is Robbie Henshaw injured, but so is Gary Ringrose, who made a big impact against England last year. So they've got some, some questions to answer there, selectorially, because they've got some questions to answer now, which they haven't had so far by losing big players. And Wales have, have almost answered their questions. They've lost so, they had so many lines out on the first couple of weekends. Um, and now, now they're starting to come back, Liam Williams and and George North, as, as we said, and you know maybe that maybe that will just that will tip the balance a bit. How how Ireland can cope with losing big players? Okay, prediction time. Uh, Ireland Wales. I will have Ireland by one point. Spinky. I will go with a Johnny Sexton penalty to win it. I'll have Ireland by five. Down in Marseille, France entertaining Italy. <coughs> France, the shambles that we discussed. Um, I think whatever way you put it, France are going to win that. <laughs> Even though we've slated them, it, I, I, again, I feel it's just a question of how big is the margin. I'll, I'll have France by 15 on that. Spinky? No, I think it's going to be tighter. I think Italy are, are due, a, good, uh, due a, a performance which lasts longer than just a few cameo moments. Um, and I think it will be tighter. I think France will really have to sweat to get through that one. Yeah, I, I think I think France will win, but I can I can see a scenario whereby Italy, who are not as good a team, but have a much stronger team spirit and dynamic and cohesion, could actually take a grip on proceedings. And then then it's about whether some magic from France could could, could put you know one of their moments put a rabbit out of the hat. But um. So I'll, I'll, I think France will win, but I can see a scenario whereby Italy make it very, very difficult for them. I'd, I'd be surprised if anyone goes anything other than an England win. Um, uh, but I, th- I think Scotland will definitely make it a, a better competition than we've seen in the past. So I will say I'll have England by just more than a just more than a score, a bit of a, a tiny bit of comfort. I think England will win it by 10 to 12 points, but I really want to see Scotland give them a rattle. I want to see Scotland frighten them. 
Yeah, I'd, I'd say England 15. And my, my prediction last week was was, was way out because it poured with rain and that could be a factor on the that, that was unfair on you, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it was... It was, it was it, that, that could be a factor at Murrayfield, obviously. Do you, do you want to have two predictions then? A sort of losing and a winning version? I'm still saying England by 15 points. Okay, thanks, gents. Just um, just before we're done, um, just want to have a, a, a moment to reflect on on some uh, some sad news in rugby: the the, uh, the retirement of a of a very promising up and coming young player, uh, Sam Jones, uh, twenty six. He hasn't played rugby for sixteen months. The last time he uh, he was involved at all was when he got called up for an England camp in Brighton, October twenty sixteen. Um, that was the sort of the big moment wasn't it when it when he sort of been spotted by Eddie Jones elevated into the England squad um potential England career ahead of him we thought at the time and he got um got badly injured on that occasion they said at the time it's gonna be five months it's now been 16 and he's been uh forced recently just to concede defeat to the whole thing and has packed it in that is just one of the very sad realities of the way the game is now isn't it it's terribly sad. It's terribly sad in in a time under Eddie Jones when almost everything is going right for England. This is you know this is a, a desperately sad story. I remember talking to Danny Cipriani and a couple of the other boys at WAS at the time when Sam Jones first came through, and they they all said without exception that he was just a, a superb talent and you know had a really really bright future ahead of him. So for him to be kind of cut down before it even got going on the international stages is, is really tragic. Yeah, it reminds me um, slightly of a different scenario, but but Tom Reese, same position, same club, a young flanker with immense potential, flagged as uh, as the answer to a position that England have have struggled for a solution for, you know, consistently for many years, and just you know Tom Reese got to play for England, um, but but not enough, and Sam Jones never got to play for England, which which is a, a crying shame because he's he was a he was a hell of a young player. Okay, gents. Listen, thanks very much for joining us today. This is uh, this is the Ruck recorded at Pennyhill Park, England's base. We will uh, be all three of us up at uh, Murrayfield for the game at the weekend. The Ruck will be back next weekend. Thank you very much for joining. Us. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.